A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, this is Victoria Meyer, host of The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Joshua Baca, who is Vice President of ACC's Plastics Division, where he oversees strategic programs to advance a science-based policy agenda, national outreach, and sustainability initiatives on behalf of America's leading plastics makers. He previously led public affairs for the American Beverage Association. I mean, he actually got his start on Capitol Hill working for former U.S. Representative Heather Wilson and on Senator Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. So pretty cool stuff. Joshua, welcome to The Chemical Show. Hey, Victoria, thank you so much for having me. Long overdue, and I'm very excited to be on today. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about you. How did you go from politics to chemistry? Oh, man, it's a really bizarre story. I do somewhat joke about this with a lot of my colleagues that chemistry, at least in high school, was definitely not my strong suit. And I spent all of my career in government and politics. And really where it started was, I guess when I was about 16 years old, I had a really unique opportunity where I actually moved to Washington, D.C. for an entire semester and served as a U.S. Senate page. I was a Senate page for Senator Jeff Bingaman, who's a former senator from New Mexico. And all of that happened by accident. You could do a whole other episode on that. But it was sort of that moment that really kind of got me into politics. And I'm 16-year-old living in the nation's capital, you know, going to a great school and had some just amazing opportunities that were afforded to me. And, you know, from there, my career kind of just took off. And, you know, I went to college and studied all the political stuff and government and political science and economics and got another lucky break when I was in college and got a scholarship to move to D.C. to be an intern for, I guess, former Congresswoman Heather Wilson from New Mexico. And long story short, I guess I did a good enough job. She ended up keeping me and worked on Capitol Hill for several years, had a great experience in learning about the policy, but I really liked the politics a whole lot more. And I got into working on her political campaigns, both in 2006, she was in one of the tightest races in the country, and I think we won by about 800 votes. It was quite a race. And then she ran unsuccessfully for the Senate a few years later, and it just kind of gave me the bug, and I kind of made a career out of it, doing a lot of work in the consulting side and government politics, issue advocacy, public affairs. Then I went to go work for Senator Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in 2012 and, you know, really came back. And after that, really honed in on my ability to sort of lead large issue advocacy campaigns. And that's how I ended up at the American Beverage Association, was really kind of bringing together what I would say is this new and changing world of advocacy where traditional government relations, public affairs, and modern communications really intersect. And they're all rooted today in some substance-based agenda. And so I think a lot of organizations in the past used to be able to say no to things as a means to win. And that world has pretty much dramatically changed. And that's kind of how I got to ACC is working with them on some projects at ABA and got the recruitment. And, you know, it's been a while run since then. 
That's awesome. That's interesting. It's a foreign world for many of us, but obviously very neat. And especially when we think about just the work that ACC does on behalf of the industry. So, you know, I think most of our listeners are familiar with the ACC, but can you explain just a little bit about it for those folks that maybe don't know? Yeah. First off, ACC is a fantastic organization. You know, I often joke sometimes with some of my friends and my colleagues that there was a moment in time where I was actually debating on whether or not I should take the job when the job was offered to me. And if I had one regret, it's almost looking back that I almost did it, maybe. And so I say that is because the organization is great. It's got great member companies, a level of engagement like I've never seen before from all levels, including the highest levels, a fantastic senior leadership team that I get to be a part of that's helping run the organization on a daily basis, intellectually challenging issues. <laughs> I mean, these are, are complex things. And you know, the biggest learning curve for me has been not everything is I'm more of a black and white kind of guy and everything is gray and everybody has a different interpretation of that shade of gray. And so what we do at ACC is we're really an advocacy organization. We represent the chemical manufacturers, the resin suppliers, and all of the work that's associated with making sure that the business of chemistry is, you know, several billions of dollars. And we represent some of the leading companies in the space who are, you know, responsible for making modern life possible. You know, the companies like Dow to Salonese to other companies you've never even heard of, maybe like Cabestro or, you know, the average consumer never has heard of, but they all got something in common, which I think is what really kind of jazzes me up about the work that we're doing. They're all committed to solving some big problems and they're doing it in sustainability in particular and circularity. Um, they're doing it with how they engage and types of people they employ within their companies. And what's really cool about all of this and really is that I get to be at the intersection of all of this. You know, we're actually in what I would say in the process of an entire industry that's going through a massive state of transition today. And you don't really get to say that very often. And, you know, I hope I look back in 10, 15, 20 years and can point to that I was a key enabler, part of that transition. Yeah, that's interesting. And it is a huge inflection point for the industry, right? So I I think that the industry of the future, 10 or 15 years from now, is going to be very different from where we're at today. And I think we do need organizations like ACC to help create the advocacy, but also create some commonality across companies that is otherwise hard to get. So let's maybe just talk a little bit about strategic pillars. And I know that it's certainly for groups like ACC and other industry groups, I mean, it tends to revolve around, you know, what are the key strategic pillars for the entity and its member companies? So what is the big focus currently for ACC and the plastics division? Let me start off with ACC because I think it sets really nicely up to what we're doing in the plastics division. You know, ACC has a pretty big and bold agenda and strategy that they're working on. I mean, it really is rooted in sustainability is how I would think about it. And it really is kind of five core pillars. One is air and the issue of air and how we address that uh, component from a climate perspective is very important. Second one is product safety and implementation like laws that have passed, like the Tosca reform legislation, for instance. We're working on issues that deal with product safety. That's another core pillar of ours. Circularity is key to what we're doing. And that's probably where I spend 80% of my time And then another initiative that probably a lot of people are beginning to learn more about us is our Future of STEM Scholars Initiative, FOSSI, where we're partnering with uh, historically Black colleges and universities to really change the workforce in our companies, investing in people who want to study STEM and who are focused on engineering and science and chemistry. And, you know, I think we have a realization within our industry that we need more of those people from those communities to be studying those things. And we view it as a key pillar for us in opening the doors 
to bring it in and ushering an entirely new generation of leaders within our companies. And I think that sets up really nicely to what we do within the plastics division, which is really that fourth pillar, but really also circularity as a pillar of sustainability. And within the division, you know, our work is rooted in sustainability. It is the intellectual foundation that helps us formulate our advocacy strategies and our communication strategies. And part of that also is advancing an agenda that's focused on achieving very ambitious goals that our companies have put out. One of the goals that we have spent a lot of our time on is ensuring that 100% of our plastic packaging will be recyclable by 2040. That's a really big, ambitious goal. It is ambitious. And it's hard. <laughs> and you're not going to get there, you know, just by, you know, you can't get there taking small steps. You got to take big steps to get there. One of the things that we do is kind of think about where that, how do you achieve those goals? Part of that is private sector investment. You know, our companies have invested well over $8 billion to date in just the last few years and trying to accelerate circularity. Another pillar of that is innovation and bringing new technologies to the market like advanced recycling. Another component is collaboration with the value chain and making sure that we are working towards achieving those similar goals. If you want to achieve that 2040 goal, it's going to require value chain collaboration. It's going to require things like improving access. It's going to require end markets and economics. It's going to require probably new technology on how we sort and process some new material. And then all of that really kind of formulates our advocacy strategy. And that advocacy strategy is both at the federal level, at the state level, and at the international level. At the federal level is probably where we've put forth our most recent ambitious proposal, which we call Five Actions for Sustainable Change. And really what it was is a model to help transition America to you know, an economy that's largely been linear to one that is much more circular and really putting our industry at the center of that, you know, using more recycled plastic and packaging by 2030, a 30% national standard. It's uh, ensuring that things like advanced recycling count in this broad debate around circularity. It's improving standards and developing standards to help us recycle more material. It's studying the impact of GHG emission. It's supporting producer responsibility systems to help build more recycling infrastructure. So those are some big, bold policies that we're advocating for. And it's really important because it is interconnected with both international and state. You know, at the state level, we have been very active in ensuring that advanced recycling counts and is regulated appropriately. And on the international level, there's a debate going on in the context of the UNEA 5.2 negotiations on, you know, what is it that we should do to tackle waste? And we think that our plan, and frankly, the U.S. could serve as a model for that and setting the tone on how you know, we address the issue of circularity. And, it's, you know, I may come from that old school mentality where American leadership to me is still critical. But I say that because, you know, you go back to the first part of my story. You know, I got an opportunity. I'm a kid from a small town in New Mexico with 15,000 people who live in my community. And most people who probably never left that area to have an opportunity to sort of you know, go through all the things I've been through in my life and see those things. It, it does what I think comes in regards to American leadership because I have kind of lived the American dream. And so it may sound cheesy when you say America can be the model, but it should be. And whether it's on circularity or mobility or whatever or not, I think that's really important piece for the broad debate on these issues going on around the world today. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because one of the things, in fact, when you talk about, for instance, product safety in Tosca, one of the things that comes to mind is like reach the European standards that came in that fundamentally influenced companies around the globe, right? So I think it's the global world that we're in is interesting in terms of who gets to set these, take the leadership position and set the standards and how you create the collaboration across industry groups, but also how you create that leadership opportunity. Yeah, you know, and I think in the context of these debates, I'd say this to almost anybody who will listen to me. You know, you're never going to get 100% of what you want 
but you can get 100% of what you don't want if you're not stepping forward and leading. And that's where I think that the, the world of advocacy in particularly gets really muddy now. I grew up in an era where in the issue advocacy world, you know, you would say yes or no to things and kind of move on and that's how you did stuff. And today, issues have become much more complicated. And for us, we don't have that luxury to say no. We have to say yes, because it's the policies that we want to put forth are both one business certainty, two, it's, you know, good economics. I mean, the issue of circularity is an entirely new business model for many of our companies. And I think you could do both of those things and do something good for the environment. So that's a good thing, you know, and I, I think it's important to be transparent that, you know, businesses are in the, the business of making a profit, but they can also make a profit and do something good for the environment, I think it could be a win-win for everybody. I think there's a lot of business and money to be made. And at the end of the day, you know, when I talk to different folks about sustainability and circularity, you know, one of the things they come back to is there's a certain amount that sustainability and circularity is inherent in the chemical industry. When you look at kind of the entirety of the value chain, some of the products were created because, oh, well, there's a waste stream that it shouldn't be a waste stream. Let's figure out how to turn it into something valuable and useful. So now we're at a different point where we're really trying to figure out, especially with plastics, obviously, it's the hot topic of how do we make them more recyclable and with advanced recycling and other technologies, make it more useful long-term for the future. You know, one of the things that strikes me is just the challenge of creating that alignment, both within member companies, but also then when you go out and talk to constituent groups and obviously governments. And and I know you mentioned advanced recycling. I've seen a lot of, I guess, press releases and notes in the news, so to speak, about different states approving advanced recycling. So there's a lot of moving pieces. How do you create that alignment and coalition building? Oh, man, you know, that's what I spend all of my days doing, both alignment within our companies and alignment with other stakeholders. You know, I think from the company side, I I like to take that one first because I don't always think our companies get the credit that they deserve. You know, and I don't even just say that in the context of, you know, my job is to be their chief advocate and to, you know, help advance their agenda, but they're doing some pretty groundbreaking stuff, right? I mean, your point about there about there's a waste stream and they're turning it into something valuable is innovation. And I know we often think of innovation as just, you know, this iPhone, for instance, but innovation comes in multiple forms, you know, perhaps that waste stream that was identified is a new material that's going into this iPhone. And most consumers don't know that. And so I do think first thing is that maybe misunderstood on the, where they're going and hard work they're doing. So I'm very proud of their work. And I say that is because we have had broad alignment. I think we've been very clear on our agenda. We've been very clear on our goals and our aspirations. We've also been really clear in acknowledging, look, we're not 100% there. And getting to 100% is really, really tough, right? And so... But if we don't try, we're not going to make any progress. So we're working through it. We're not where we want to be today, but I'm pretty confident we're on the right path on where we want to go. In regards to broader alignment with stakeholders, look, I think internally, one of our core values is alignment with the value chain. That's a critical piece for us, right? And alignment with the value chain means a whole lot of different things, a whole lot of different people. But what it really means in the most simplest terms is that we all sing off the same song sheet, right? That we all are working towards the same goals. I think the value chain has a responsibility, for instance, like if you're a brand company and how you market your materials, I think the resin suppliers and the converters have a responsibility to make sure that the products they make are more recyclable. I think there's a key role for collaboration with you know local communities and stakeholders who are responsible for that to improving recycling access. There's an entirely new market for the demand for recycled material largely made by consumer brand companies. You know, when you have a demand like that, a really strong demand, it opens up an opportunity for new market developments to your thing that was something that was viewed as waste is now viewed as a very valuable feedstock. And when we think about the role of advanced recycling in particular, 
that's essentially what you've done. I think you hit the nail on the head so well on that. You know, our companies see waste in the environment and they are, have identified that it could be a valuable piece of feedstock that they can turn it into to make new material. And when we think about the role of advanced recycling, it's really important for your listeners to know that we think advanced recycling is very complementary to mechanical recycling. And based upon market dynamics today, if something can be mechanically recycled, it probably should. You know, PET bottles, for instance, milk jugs, you know, those are things that are pretty commonly mechanically recycled today. And I think if you see the data, there is still tremendous room for growth in some of those areas, right? But what we need to get at when we start thinking about advanced recycling is how do you really collect, sort, and process everything that's not a bottle? You know, your toothpaste tubs, your the sack that your granola crunch came in, you know, the wrap around your blueberries, you know, the containers that your food came in from the local restaurant, you know, those are the things that we need to figure out. Your dry cleaning wrap, that is all really valuable feedstock. And so that's where we're trying to solve the puzzle here is if we could get to a point where we can collect, sort, and process everything that's not a bottle, you're going to have achieved the goals that we've outlined. To do that, we need to think about how we continue to improve access and how we educate people about what can go in the bin. And if we continue to evolve that technology, like I have pockets and setups today, we could take more of that material in the bin. And then that gives us the incentives to help waste management companies and material recovery facilities. There's even new ideas like a consortium of companies called Cyclix that's uh, aggregating feedstock. You know, those are all opportunities that create new, you know, new pathways to achieve our goals. So it's kind of hard, I think, where I went back to that point that, you know, it's not black and white and everything is gray. If you see everything I just told you there, it relies on, it's all dependent upon each other, right? Absolutely. And so if we don't, adopt the mindset of collaboration, which is what we have, we're never going to be at the goals that we want to be. Now, look, I think it is also important to recognize that there will be some people who don't want to support our goals because they think plastics is inherently bad. I just disagree with that. I mean, you know, the next generation of mobility, for instance, we work with all of the automotive companies in supplying the material that lightweights their cars, that protects the electric batteries that they make, that makes those cars go further and longer you know, the home insulations that make your buildings more energy efficient, the modern pipe that delivers water to communities. I mean, there's a variety of applications that plastic goes into. And so it's easy to maybe think about it in the context that plastic is just a straw. It's actually more than a straw. It's a pretty amazing material that's doing a whole lot of things and a whole lot of applications. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that it's a a huge educational challenge for with consumers, right? I mean, I find that I have those conversations with individuals as well. And I talk about, for instance, the lightweighting thing as it relates to, you know, I like to use the example of when, you know, the airlines switch from glass bottles to plastic bottles for the <laughs> booze on the plane, how much fuel they saved. I mean, they did it because it was a significant fuel savings, right? So it's like, and like oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. But, you know, think about it in all the other places. So I think there's still a real need to continue to educate consumers. And the challenge, of course, is there's way more consumers than there are companies sitting on this side of the table, let's say, trying to educate them, right? So the narrative, it's hard to keep up with the narrative sometimes, I think, is one of the big challenges. Yeah. I mean, look, you think about car safety and airbags are not made out of metal or glass. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's a reason for that, right? And so, and look, I don't say those comments. I say them jokingly, obviously, but it's also seriously because 
That plastic is a unique material. There's no doubt about it. It's a great innovation that, much like many things I've said, sometimes is really misunderstood and there's a lack of, of education and awareness of what it means. There's also a valuable role for all other materials, you know? And so, yes, we think our industry is, is the best. You know, we think plastics is better from a GHG perspective because the research shows it. But part of what's the beauty of the systems that we work in is we have a free market approach and the companies that innovate and the companies that lead and the industries that put forth cutting edge solutions are often those who went out. And I think that's essentially how we view our job at ACC is making sure that there is a level playing field to compete where we're not picking winners and losers, where companies have the ability to compete in the marketplace. And, you know, that fosters innovation, a race for innovation to be the best. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about creating, frankly, a reason for people to recycle, a reason for their waste management companies to be collecting these variety of different plastic waste streams. Let's just focus on that to bring in for mechanical recycling, advanced recycling. What do you think is really the most logical way to do this? I know that, you know, there's always a debate around, do you put a, you know, a bottle fee on? Do you do, I mean, what's the point of view in terms of how do we create those economic incentives to help the system develop? Yeah, I think the first thing, so first off, any system that collects more material is a system that we're for. And there are a variety of systems that have been proposed. There's commonly proposed systems called extended producer responsibility. There are bottle deposit return systems. You know, I'm familiar with both of those, having worked both in the chemical industry and in the beverage industry. But I think that's most important is that not all of those systems are created the same. And so... When we think about extended producer responsibility, we really don't like the E part. The E part implies something like a one-size-fits-all takeover of the entire waste system. And that's not really our recommended approach. We think when we call it a producer responsibility system, because producers put fees into the system via fees that are applied on their packaging through a needs-based assessment, and that money is reinvested back into the system to build more access infrastructure, education. And so a producer responsibility system, our number one principle is that it must reinvest the money back into the system to continue to support infrastructure, build new infrastructure, and ultimately achieve the circularity goals that we want. That is something we very much strongly support. On the bottle deposit system, for instance, you could actually see real world examples of how this has not worked out. You have states like New York and Connecticut who have very robust bottle deposit systems but very low rates of recycling or poor infrastructure or other elements because they haven't invested the money back in the system. You know, you have politicians who rob the bank to fund the general fund, which was not the intent of, of developing that system. And so in my view, it's understandable why businesses might be skeptical of going down a path and creating these systems because of what has happened in the past, but we got to kind of start fresh, right? And put the best solutions forward. But systems that get more material into the system that incentivizes the consumer to do so and reinvest that money back in the system, I think it's probably a good system. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. What do you see as the biggest barrier today to advancing the agenda? Access to feedstock. That's the technical answer. You know, if you want to continue to scale and grow advanced recycling, frankly, if you want to continue to scale and grow mechanical recycling, as I mentioned, if you want to achieve the ambitious circularity goals that we have put out, if you want to use more recycled material and plastic packaging, if you want to be more circular, then you need more feedstock. That's it. You know, I think our companies have really innovated on the technology side. Now we need to get access to that feedstock. And it goes back to how do we collect more of this material? That's key. You know, from a broader philosophical perspective, you know, I think we're in a point where the obstacles that exist is, you know, there has been a lack of trust sometimes in the system. And I outlined some of those reasons. You know, there is uncertainty in the market with erroneous regulations that may 
seek to ban or regulate or encourage the use of materials that maybe don't have a better carbon footprint. And so you kind of take those things, you got to break those barriers, right? And for us to get more feedstock in the system, it's going to be thinking about things that we do differently. Probably it requires secondary sortation to get your films and your pouches. It might be creatively thinking of ways to, we have bottle deposit systems today that there's a fee applied to a bottle deposit system, return your bottle. Maybe there's a way to do that for other material and um, provide some incentive there to, to do something similar so that it's more than a bottle. These are all models that need to be explored. And I think everyone in the value chain is ambitiously working to try to find these solutions. And at the end of the day, you have to change consumer behavior, right? I mean, it always astonishes me, you know, the things that people are and are not willing to do, especially even like the very easily recyclable products. Consumers choose not to do that. I have a member company who reminds me of this of all, all the time. He's like, we can innovate, but we cannot recycle trash. And so that means that we need better systems to sort the material from what is trash today, right? Yeah, interesting. And so I think that's a really important observation. But to the broad point here, it's probably not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. It's going to be all of these things in some regard. And if you improve the systems, that gives you the opportunity to better educate the consumer. The consumer probably lacks confidence today that if they put something in the bin, it actually gets recycled. Until you improve the system, it's going to be hard to educate them that the system works. Yeah, interesting. Awesome. What's next on your agenda? What do you guys see coming up for the rest of the year? Well, we have a couple of things that we're really focused in on. You know, first thing is we want to make sure that our federal proposal gets introduced in Congress. Well, that's a really high priority for us and for our members. You know, these are marathons and not sprints. And so the introduction of a bill might seem like small potatoes, but you might also remember that most things don't get done in Congress. So, <laughs> so that's a really big, important milestone. I think the second thing is we want to begin and see successful negotiations around the UNIA 5 treaties and making sure that we develop an approach that allows our country by country implement systems that work for their country. So waste management capacity in Indonesia, for instance, is very different than the waste management capacity in Indiana. And I think we need to make sure that that one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. And then the third thing is we need to make sure that states continue to lead on advanced recycling. 18 states today have passed laws that regulate advanced recycling as a manufacturing process as opposed to a waste incineration process. My hope is that we are at 22, 23, 24, 25 by the end of this year. That would be really important. And then more broadly, you know, there's a lot of work happening for instance, in the implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law. And, you know, some of the things going on there really impact our industry and we want to see it successfully implemented. And that's a really big priority for us as well, too. A lot of debate around transportation and mobility in the era of high gas prices and how you accelerate those supply chains. I think we're going to be critical in that debate as well, too. So there's no shortage of things going on right now, but I'd probably give you like 20 more examples. But those are probably the most significant ones that we're focused on. That's awesome. You guys are busy, busy doing good work. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it getting the chance to talk with you on these topics. And I know they're um, near and dear to many people's heart that uh, are listening to this podcast. So thank you for joining us on The Chemical Show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Victoria. I enjoyed it very much. All right. Thanks. And thanks everyone for listening. We will talk to you again next week. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.